Once upon a time, there were four little rabbits. How old are you, Johnny? She asked. Sixteen. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. It For was the best of times. It was the worst of times. A wise old king once said, of the making of books, there is no end. How true today. Of the overabundance of writing published each year, what's worth reading? The answer is simple. Read only the best. Come join the discussion on Just the Best Literature. Well, hello again, everyone. Thanks for listening in today. With me in the studio today is my producer, Mr. Dan Arnfeld. Good afternoon, Dan. Hello. Hey, it's good to have you. Um, I don't have any comments today. And so uh, all of you out there that are enjoying listening, you could start getting, sending in some comments. I told you last time about I got a nice comment from someone that said, wow, we're really excited you're back from Jerusalem. And then she said this because she just had listened to a recent program. But she was somewhat disappointed when I said, oh, I taped that before we left for Jerusalem. <laughs> so so anyway, but I did thank her for saying uh, that she thought it was nice we were back. Now, uh, on our last program, I moved deeper into Chapter 9 titled Bangalore. And uh, we were talking about uh, Winston Churchill. He's 23, and he's realizing that he needs to be self-educated. He really felt the need he needed more education now now so uh let's just go back to page 112 at the very bottom and and uh we can actually uh, pick up where we were last time and uh um let's just look at page page 112 at the very bottom and i i think this is is what's really uh, impressive and again as i mentioned last time to all the parents that are listening in i think it'd be good if your if your high school students and even your college students could be encouraged to listen in because true education really is self education you have to want to be educated and it's it's a lot more than just getting a grade as well by the way it's it's it really is a satisfying thing to to know that you're educated so so over in the last program we talked about all the books that his his mom was sending him he realized he needed to be reading history and uh, uh he he had read the rise and for or the decline of the fall of the roman empire uh he was really into history and what what was really interesting uh, is uh, at the bottom of page 112 he said from november to may to may i read for four or five hours every day, history and philosophy. And, you know, I don't know how many of you that are listening are aware of Herbert W. Armstrong. And uh, uh, he's got a great autobiography that you should be reading. And anyway, it sounds so much like him. You know, he would go to the public library and he was studying what he was learning about the truth. He'd go into the library in the morning and not leave till seven o'clock at night. And so... So, um, I mean, it really does take a lot of personal dedication to become educated. And, you know, you can't get educated on TikTok. You can't get educated, you know, if you're watching YouTube videos. You know, you're not going to get educated if you watch uh, Everybody Loves Raymond every night. <laughs> it's just you need to be reading, reading and studying. And, but he says, I read for four or five hours every day history and philosophy 
Plato's Republic, it appeared he was for all practical purposes the same as Socrates. The Politics of Aristotle, edited by Weldon himself, Schopenheimer on pessimism, Malthus on population, Darwin's origin of the species, all interspersed with each other, books of lesser standing. It was a curious education. So I think that's an interesting statement. He said, look, this was a curious education. So it's not necessarily one you're going to get at, let's say, a real organized college, but it was still a great education. He says, first, because I approached it with an empty, hungry mind and with fairly strong jaws, and what I got, I bit. And so so think about that. I mean, he's he's a subaltern. He's in India. And, uh, you know, he's he's uh, learning a lot about the empire, and he's learning a lot about the, the, the nation of India. But he's still, he's not just wasting his time. Five hours of his day, he's educating himself. And he says, uh, like he said, he got really bit on the idea of self-education. He says, secondly, because I had no one to tell me, this is discredited. And, and so... So that, that it was frustrating for him. And, uh, you know, it, it is frustrating. Even, uh, you know, there's some certain things that I think about. And, uh, um, there are times I feel like I have to go talk to someone else to seek, to, to, you know, see, is my thinking right on this? You know, is that, is that right? And, uh, uh, a- anyway, he says, but what he got, he, what he bit, he really, he really did get. And he said, you should read the answer to that by so-and-so. The two together will give you the gist of the argument. So he's saying, if you're studying something you don't understand, find somebody that knows what, to, know what, it's, knows what it's all about. And then get, you know, get into some discussion, talk about it. He said, there's a much better book on that subject and so forth. He said, you know, if you can find someone that can help you, they, they may have a, a better book. He says, I now began for the first time to envy those young cubs at the university who had fine scholars to tell them what was what. Now, to me, that's a great admission because he did not like the young punks at the university. <laughs> you know, he thought they were worthless, kind of like, you know, they were head into their, you know, Socratic method and, uh, you know, kind of thing. And so, so, but, but, but he began to realize he needed to have some college professors that could tell him, hey, you know, there's something better you could be reading on this. He said, um, he said, he's, he's, he's talking about going to find professors who had devoted their lives to mastering and focusing ideas in every branch of learning, who were eager to distribute the treasures they had and gathered before they were overtaken by the night. And he's saying, look, there are a lot of good teachers in this world. I know I had some some really excellent teachers in high school and college that would do anything to help me. And, you know, we need to find who they are. And uh, parents, I mean, the thing is, is I think you have certain rights. If things aren't going well at your at your schools where your children are, you can certainly go and talk to the principals. You can go and talk to the heads of the schools, find out if there's something that can be done differently. Or maybe you could just ask, what can I do more? What books could I have at home that would help? And, uh, you know, that's important. 
He said, but but now I pity undergraduates when I see what frivolous lives many of them lead in the midst of precious fleeting opportunity. So can you imagine if you brought Winston Churchill alive and you sent him down to London Bridge when he see all of the young, educated students supporting Hamas? I mean, Winston Churchill would go nuts. And, and that is a result of education. It's bad education. And even people are waking up. We were, we were listening, uh, you know, I, I'm almost afraid to tell this. I do listen to Fox News. <laughs> even my sister said, oh, you listen to Fox News too much. And I said, well, I don't listen to it all the time. But still, um, some of the leading people, you know, in Fox News, and uh, like Jesse Waters, he said, this is education has done this to us. That's what's happened. And, you know, he said that it's, it's happening at all the top universities. It's crazy. He says, and he goes on to say, after all, a man's life must be nailed to a cross either of thought or action. And so that's a, that's an, a great statement. He said, without work, there is no play. And, and he said, get the work in first, get your education first. And then, you know, obviously, uh, you know, we should be preparing for a job. And, and, uh, I went on, got a master's degree, uh, because I needed, I knew I needed to have a good job. And, um, and I did, I did, I got a very good job after graduating. And he says, when I am in a, in the Socratic mood, now this is, this is a big change from what he said before. This is the same chapter. So he said, what is this Socrates thing all about? Now he's in a Socratic mood and planning my Republic. So, so think about it. I mean, this is, he's 23. He's in India. He's thinking about, Hey, what would my Republic look like? I mean, how many, how many high school kids think about that? What's my republic going to be like? Is it going to be TikTok? <laughs> you know, is it going to be uh, uh, some of the other crazy things people are involved in? And it's really inter. I was really glad the other day to hear that. Um, uh, essentially, why people are asking why are so many of our young college students out protesting? And there was one one uh, person that was being interviewed on. Fox News, by the way, and they said that they're getting all their news from TikTok. And you know who's sponsoring TikTok? Is China. And so do you think they're telling the truth on TikTok? They're not. They're not. And that's why even Mr. Stephen Flurry you know, has done a special presentation of what Hamas really did to the Jews. And it's not easy to watch. It's not for children, but it would change people's ideas. I think even, uh, and I don't want to talk too much about Fox News, but Jesse Waters has this, his uh, friend that goes out and interviews people. And they had a list of what actually Hamas did. And they said, hey, would you sign up to support Hamas? And they said, yeah, I'll sign up. He said, well, you have to read this and see, you have to agree to it. And they would say, oh, I'm not signing that when they saw what Hamas was really doing. Now, this, that's not what this, this 
this is for this. I mean, this radio program is for that. It's to you know examine literature. So let me get back there. And he goes on to say, when I am in the Socratic mood and planning my republic, I make I will make drastic changes in the education of the sons of well-to-do citizens. Think about that. I will make changes in education of the sons of well-to-do citizens. And even Winston Churchill saw what was going on in education when he was alive. Uh, Mr. Herbert Armstrong saw what was going on in education in America when he was alive. And nobody listened. You know, people, people didn't listen. He said, when they are 16 or 17, they begin to learn a craft and do healthy manual labor with plenty of poetry, songs, dancing, drill, and gymnastics in their spare time. So if, if Winston Churchill could get a hold of education today for 16 and 17-year-olds, look at what would happen. They have to learn a craft. They have to do healthy manual labor. They have to have plenty of poetry, songs, dancing, drill, gymnastics in their spare time. And if you look at, at the college here, what are our students doing? They're doing manual labor. They're getting plenty of poetry. They're getting songs. There's, we have a great music department. We just had a great, uh, just a great concert last night from, uh, you know, four, uh, young Frenchmen, uh, French men and ladies who came and gave us an incredible Baroque program. It was just fantastic. And, and he said, uh, uh, you know, they had to learn a craft, do healthy manual labor. They had to have plenty of poetry, songs, dancing. We have, a, you know, Celtic throne. Uh, a lot of our children have been put in Irish dance since they were, you know, first grade. And, uh, you know, look at the results. He says, they can thus let off their steam on something useful. It is only when they are really thirsty for knowledge, longing to hear about things, that I would let them go to the university. So he's saying, look, if they're not <laughs> you're really hungry for learning. And if they're not really well-educated, if they're not like sound in their thinking, he wouldn't even let them go to a university. And, uh, you know, thankfully I went to a really, uh, like I went to a, I started out at the University of Pittsburgh at Johnstown. It was a small school and it was really like a graduate high school. And there were people were conservative and they, they uh, helped me say, look, you better get going. You know, if you want to graduate, you've got to get to work. He said it would be a favor, a coveted privilege, only to be given to those who had either proved their worth in a factory or field or whose qualities and zeal were preeminent. However, this would upset a lot of things. It would cause common, a, a, a cause commotion, bring me perhaps in the end a hemlock drop. <laughs> so he's saying if they didn't do what I said, he might have to drink hemlock, like Socrates. So anyway, that's kind of the end of this section. But but uh, it really is a great view of of education. And again, when he talks about my early life, and then he gets into these things, I mean, he's talking about big, big concepts that are still a problem today. Now, he does switch in this chapter and... Uh, uh, he begins to realize that he also not only needs a, a, a new view of education, he needs to be educated in religion. And I think that's, it, it's just really kind of fascinating. And to me, this is a, he's, he's very similar to Ben Franklin. We, we've just been covering Ben Franklin in the sophomore English class. And, and uh, uh, 
he 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 really there's a lot of people misunderstand about Ben Franklin is he really did have a religious background he was he was religious he just didn't like how the presbyterian church taught things and and he realized at a young age they didn't really teach from the bible and he didn't like that so he went off on his own but he said my various readings during the next two years led me to ask myself questions about religion hitherto i had dutifully accepted everything i had been told even in the holidays i always had to go to once a week to church, and at Harrow there were three services every Sunday, besides morning and evening prayers throughout the week. All this was very good. I accumulated in those years so fine a surplus in the bank of observance that I have been drawing confidently upon it ever since. Weddings, christenings, and funerals have brought it in a steady annual income, and I have never made too close inquiries about the state of my account. And so, so he, he learned about Christianity. He learned about discipline, but he's being honest. He says, "Well, uh, maybe I wasn't strong enough. You know, maybe maybe my account uh, is an overdraft." <laughs> so he says, "But now in these bright days of youth, my attendances were well ahead of the Sundays. In the army too, there were regular church parades, and sometimes I marched the Roman Catholics to church, sometimes the Protestants." Religious toleration in the British Army had spread till it overlapped the, the regions of indifference. No one was ever hampered or prejudiced on account of his religion. Everyone had the regulation facilities for its observance. In India, the deities of a hundred creeds were placed by respectful routine in the imperial pantheon. So, so in, in some ways, you know, the all-inclusiveness isn't the good idea. And, you know, there, there are... Uh, false religions. There are pagan religions. There are false, uh, even false Christian teachers. And uh, we just have to face that. He said, in the regiment, we sometimes used to argue like whether we should live again in another world after this was over. And, and so, so you can see that even, even Winston Churchill, even though he went to, uh, you know, Sunday services and they had prayer meetings, they weren't really taught the truth of the Bible because you would know what's going to happen after death. And the Bible is very clear what's going to happen after death. And, uh, um, you know, the most shocking thing that I learned from the Bible is, uh, you know, sinners aren't going to hell. There is no hell. <laughs> you know, and we're not going to heaven either. <laughs> you know, the, it's very clear. Uh, it says that if you're, if you live the right life and, uh, God, uh, sees that you are obedient and doing what he says, we're going to inherit the earth. I mean, we're going to be ruling this earth. And, uh, you know, you, you can't find that in religion today. He says, whether we remember and meet with each other after death or merely start again like the Buddhists, whether some high intelligence looking after the world or whether things are just drifting on anyhow, there was general agreement that if you tried your best to live an honorable life and did your duty and were faithful to friends and not unkind to the weak and poor, it did not matter much what you believed or disbelieved. All would come out right. This is what would nowadays, I suppose, be called the religion of healthy-mindedness. <laughs> so, so again, uh, he, he did want to, want to look into religion. And again, uh, we know from Winston Churchill's life that that I don't think he was overly religious, 
but he did have some really sound thinking. He says, some of our senior officers who dwelt upon the value of the Christian religion to women, it helps to keep them straight. <laughs> That's what he's saying. Is the men thought, yeah, religion is good for women because it keeps them straight. Don't worry about the men. We'll, we'll do what we want to do. And he said, also generally to lower orders. Nothing can give them a good time here, but it makes them more contented to think that we'll get one hereafter. He said, Christianity, it appeared, also had a disciplinary value, disciplinary value, especially when presented through the Church of England. It made people want to be respectable, to keep up appearances, to, to, and so save lots of scandals. From this standpoint, ceremonies and rituals ceased to be of importance. They were merely the same idea translated into a different language to suit races and temperaments. Too much religion of any kind, however, was a bad thing. And so, so what he's really referring to there, what if, what if your religion is false? It's a bad thing. It's not a good thing. And so, so anyway, he goes on to say, I, I want to, um, just skip down here a little bit. You can, you can read a lot of this for yourself. But he says, um, my, um, he said, of course, if I had been, this is the bottom of page 115. If I had been at a university, my difficulties might have been resolved by the eminent professors and divines who were gathered there. At any rate, they would have shown me equally convincing books, putting the opposite points of view as I was passed through the violent and aggressive anti-religious phase, which had it lasted might easily have made me a nuisance. So, so he did, um, kind of, totally reject religion, but now that he's older, he says, my poise was restored during the next few years by frequent contact with danger. I found that whatever I might think and argue, I did not hesitate to ask for special protection. And so, so here, if you understand what he's saying, is Winston Churchill was a praying man, and he did pray to God for protection. He says, when about to come under the fire of the enemy, nor to feel sincerely grateful when I got home safe to tea, I even asked for lesser things than not to be killed too soon, and nearly always in these years, and indeed throughout my life, I got what I wanted. This practice seemed perfectly natural and just as strong and real as the reasoning process, which contradicted it so sharply. Moreover, the practice was comforting and reasoning led nowhere. I therefore acted in accordance with my feelings without troubling to square such conduct with the conclusion of thought. And so, so he goes on to say towards the bottom of that page, he says, I did not, this is page 116, I did not worry about the inconsistency of thinking one way and believing the other. I seen, it seemed good to let the mind explore so far as it could the pass of thought and logic and also good to pray for help and succor and be thankful when they came. So, so again, he, he wasn't super Christian, but I do think he did believe in a creator. And here he says that. He said, I cannot feel that the supreme creator who gave us our minds as well as our souls would be offended if they did not always run smoothly together in double harness. So, so in some ways, uh, you know, that's his philosophy, and it's not necessarily Bible philosophy. He said, accordingly, I've always been surprised to see some of our bishops and clergy making such heavy weather about reconciling the Bible story with modern scientific and historical knowledge. 
And uh, what he's really talking about there is they don't understand the Bible anyway. And so, you know, it's, it's, uh, he doesn't know that. But, but we know that uh, Winston is going to get his day. And um, we're all looking forward, I think, to, uh, to meeting and talking with him in, uh, in the, the second resurrection. Okay, I want to just uh, skip over. Uh, he's, he starts talking a little bit more uh, about religion in a way. Um, he says, Some of my cousins who had the great advantage of the university education and to tease me with arguments to prove that nothing has any existence except that what we think of it. And so, so uh, here these, these, his cousins were taught, <laughs> you know, absolute no religion. He said, The whole creation is but a dream. That's what they thought. All phenomena are imaginary. You create your own universe as you go along. The stronger your imagination, the more variegated your universe. When you leave off dreaming, the universe ceases to exist. These amusing mental acrobats are right to play with. They are perfectly harmless and perfectly useless. <laughs> he says, I warn my younger readers only to treat them as a game. The metaphysicians will have the last word and defy you to dis disapprove their absurd pr propositions. So <laughs> he's saying, uh, don't pay any attention to metaphysicians. <laughs> so, so, uh, again, it's, it's not, uh, it's not the best, uh, treatise on religion, but I do think it's interesting that, that he realized that he needed more. He goes on to say, he said, um, let me see if I can, if I have time for this. He said, I always rested upon the following argument, which I devised for myself many years ago. We look up in the sky and see the sun. Our eyes are dazzled and our senses record the fact. So here is this great sun standing apparently on no better foundation than our physical senses. But happily, there is a method apart from our physical senses of testing the reality of the sun. It is by mathematics. By means of prolonged process of mathematics, entirely separate from the senses, astronomers are able to calculate when an eclipse will occur. <laughs> and so there, you know, what he's saying is, you know, science literally could support religion. <laughs> you know, if, if you know mathematics, there's law in the universe. That's what he's saying. And, and uh, you know, there are spiritual laws, you know, that govern our minds. And, you know, in our spirits, we do have a human spirit, but there's also laws in the universe. And, uh, you know, if, if, uh, I'm definitely not an astronomer. I'm definitely not good at mathematics. It says, uh, uh but, but listen to what astronomer, astronomers learn. He says, they predict by pure reason that a black spot will pass across the sun on a certain day. You go and look and your sense of sight immediately tells you, that their calculations are vindicated. So here you have the evidence of the senses reinforced by the entirely separate evidence of a vast, independent process of mathematical reasoning. We have taken what is called in military mapmaking a cross-bearing. We have got independent testimony to the reality of the sun. When my metaphysical friends tell me that the data on which the astronomers made their calculations were necessarily originally through the evidence of the senses, I say no. They might in theory at any rate be obtained by automatic calculating machines set in motion by the light falling upon them without a mixture of the human senses of any stage. And so, so anyway, 
He's, he go, I'll go on to say this. He says, I am also at the, at this point accustomed to reaffirm with emphasis my conviction that the sun is real and also that it is hot. In fact, it's hot as hell and that if the metaphysicians doubt it, they should go there and see. <laughs> so, so he's really funny. Well, that's all we have for today's program. And so, uh, I'm really, really glad to, to be with you. For our next program, uh, I want to finish chapter nine, just a little bit left to go. And then we'll move on to chapter 10, which is titled The Malacan Field Force. So we're going to see that, uh, Winston Churchill is going to get back on his horse, probably. So you can buy My Early Life at Amazon.com. You may be able to find a good used copy at abebooks.com. And of course, you may be able to find a good copy in your local library or bookstore. Now, please write me any comments. You may have the JBL at PCOD.org. You can also follow JBL on Twitter at JBLiterature1. You can also follow JBL on Facebook. Simply search for just the best literature. So until next time, keep reading. You've been listening to Just the Best Literature on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG. Streaming online at kpcg.fm and thetrumpet.com.